Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for another DC Spotlight, this time for the week of February 27th, 2024. I thought it was an okay week. I don't know that anything stood out as being an absolute stinker. Uh, there may be a few rants <laughs> involved. Uh, I also don't think anything stood out as like, oh, my God, that was so good. So, I don't know, kind of, kind of an average week. Uh, it'll be interesting because I know a lot of times – when we talk about the books, by the time we get into talking about them, Rocky's like, oh, it was a better week than I thought. I, I just have this sneaking suspicion that we're going to talk about these books. And at the end, I'm going to go, oh, it was a worse week than I thought. <laughs> but I guess, we'll, I guess we'll see. What are your thoughts on the week overall, Rock? Well, well there, was, there was a couple that outright confused me. But I actually, uh, having because we, we uh, do the technical difficulties on my end, uh, we never uh, got started uh, reviewing last night. So I had some time to read some of them again. I, I actually, I feel a little bit better about, about them uh, on, on reflection than I did yesterday. But, uh, but we shall see, because I agree with you. It's amazing how our views can change as you and I rant and rave to each other as we review them. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, one of the series that we've liked from the beginning is Penguin. Uh, so we have issue seven from writer Tom King. Steven Subic is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, I'll talk about the art first. I'm not the biggest fan of, of Subic's art, right? So we saw him use mixed media when he did the, the Riddler year one. And I, I thought it was okay. It certainly established a mood. And from what I know of the Riddler in the recent Batman movie, um, it felt like it was kind of suited, right? like the tone kind of fit that that character. Now we're just getting traditional comic art from him. And I, I really just don't care for his style. Um, it's a little muddy at times. Um, I'm one of those people I, I really like when I can see a character's eyes. I think you can portray a lot of emotion and thus tension and uh, impact visually with the way a character's eyes look this guy a lot of times when it comes to the penguin he's like drawing his eyes like you would draw a bird's eyes you know it's like all black with like a little white speck uh and i yeah. get nothing from it and the penguin looks maybe more grotesque than i've ever seen him look he looks like uh do you remember that old uh, captain america villain from the late 80s the slug that's what penguin looks like. He, looks like he looks like the slug back then or just like a slug like if you've seen a slug in your garden or whatever or out on your uh porch or whatever that, that's what he looks like he doesn't look like the penguin um he just looks gross uh which you know i guess that's supposedly that's supposed to be part of why the penguin is who he is or whatever but even with the art style that we had previously this just doesn't fit he looks so different um you know, there's one scene where he gets upset at one of the bartenders that is working at the club, which, again, you don't expect – the guy's a villain. You don't expect him to have any compassion. But this guy literally had the job that the Penguin used to have. The Penguin was like, oh, woe is me. I'm getting shit all the time. And then he shits on this guy, like like kills him, like just bashes his head in the bar until he's dead. And he's just like, man, Penguin, you're a scumbag. Well, you know, he's supposed to be a scumbag. But my point is like – I think you could have so much more impact in the art. Like when the, there's a scene where, uh, or a panel where the, the penguin has smashed this guy's head into the bar and he's got his head kind of down on the side and he's like looking. And again, you see those eyes and, and you don't get it. You don't get anything from those. And, and again, maybe that's, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what Subic's going for. 
um, this kind of emotionless, you know, black eyed look of a, a crow or something like that. Um, but I just wasn't just not a fan of this art at all. Um, but when it comes to the story, uh, I, I think early on in this Penguin series, you were a little more enamored with it than I was. You know, and I talked a lot about that having to do, at least I felt, with how I always saw the Penguin as more of a jokey sort of Batman villain. And I just wasn't buying in that they were trying to, you know, make him so so much more formidable and dangerous and, and what have you. Not unlike what uh, King and Mitch Garrett's did with the the Riddler your uh, the Riddler uh, one one bad day which we were just blown away by um but i don't know maybe it's tom king beating me over the head with hey the the penguin is really a bad a badass you know that i'm starting to buy into it and i'm starting to feel like i'm really anticipating the next issue of this series to see where it goes i still feel a little bit like I guess I get hung up on the physicality of it, right? Like I've said the same thing about the Joker. If the Joker was a real person and Batman was a real person, Batman would wipe the floor with them in about 30 seconds, if not less time. I feel kind of the same way about the Penguin, you know, short, dumpy guy, like how, and I get it. You're intimidated by him in some sort of way, but that, that bartender, this is your life. Like you're going to be fighting for your life. I think you could take him. I think, I think just an average person, an average, you know, healthy person without any disabilities or whatever could probably take the penguin in a fight. He's not he- healthy. He's, you know, this overweight, short guy. He just, I don't know. So the, I, I go back a little bit back and forth, but um, I do think it's a compelling story. Uh, I think it's growing on me. And I, yeah, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. Um, I, is this 12 issues? Do we know? I thought it was 12 issues. I, I believe uh, it is. Yeah. I believe it is. Yeah. yeah. So we're a little over halfway and I, I still, I'm not, I'm just not sure where King's going to take us next. Uh, so yeah, again, the art, just not my cup of tea, but the story has been, uh, I think very, very solid. It's been uh, very good throughout and, and it's gotten better for me. The story, the narrative has gotten better uh, <clears throat> over time. So uh, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, well, I just I, I'm really impressed by this. I I continue to be more interested in the penguin than I've ever been interested in the penguin in the history of the character. This is elevating the penguin up and giving him more gravitas than he's ever had before. And I believe in a very believable way because I don't think and you, you touched upon it because you basically said, I mean, you know, the penguin is kind of a joke. He's a fat, blobby, dumb, you know, he's a fat, he's a short, fat, unattractive man. Well, where does his power lie? I think Tom King's done in a a very good job making the penguin to be absolutely sociopathically horrifying. He's a horrifying person. And what, what the central conceit of this issue and what King scripts so well here is the fact that everything is a contrivance. The, the costume, the, 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 his alleged obsession with, with, with penguins, although he does like eating seafood, his purported insanity, all of it is a facade. So, be, uh, and it was, it was initially all a facade to, because Penguin needed Batman to treat him like a villain, even though he was ostensibly just trying to help Batman out. And Batman knew that he was being played, but Batman was playing a game of chess with, penguin saying he knew that the penguin is was was doing wrong as well but he batman was gambling saying well i can take down big there's bigger fish to fry so to speak than this 
wannabe bartender who wants to be a wanna, you know, wants to be a mobster. This penguin guy, Batman, clearly has been underestimating Penguin, and he even knows he is, but he's hoping that he isn't. It, it's a, it's an uncomfortable game of chess. And I know some people have maybe criticized this story and say, well, you know, Batman wouldn't be this stupid. Batman wouldn't do this. And I say, BS. Batman absolutely would. A Batman at the beginning of his career wanting to take out the mafia, having an uncomfortable alliance like this with the bartender of the local bar establishment, he absolutely would, at least in my interpretation of Batman. And even the way that Penguin plays the long game here and every everything, even the way that he is drawn, you mentioned it by Steven Subic. I actually like his look. I think it looks uh, particularly terrifying, but I'll, I'll grant you that it is, it's, it's, it, it's an adjustment if you're more of a fan of the more of the traditional sort of look of of the penguin of oswald cobblepot no question about it but i thought it was very well done and even at the end how he's figuring out penguin is always possibly one step ahead of batman even trying to figure out who bought the mobsters lounge that will eventually become the uh the iceberg lounge and of course he discovers it's bruce wayne and he's working in conjunction with the help it's just so well done. So many moving pieces. And I think this reads so well. Uh, I can't wait. This is this is going to be another Tom King 12 issues that, I, that I'll be picking up the hardcover for by the looks of things because I'm already loving this. And uh, each issue, it, it, it seems to be going somewhere. And I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. And uh, maybe a little bit more than you, but I, I'm confident that it's, it's – it's, uh, well, I'm hopeful King can nail the landing, but he does nail the landing in most of what he's uh, written, in, in, in my opinion. But we shall see. Yeah. Uh, Heroes in Crisis, maybe notwithstanding. In most yeah, notwithstanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. I forgot to mention, I, I, I did want to, the, the whole idea of him putting on the affectations with the umbrella and the dressing like a penguin in the top hat and the, even the cigarette holder, just to, to to be able to, for people to buy into the fact that he's insane. So when Batman does have to bust him uh, in order to keep up his reputation with the rest of the criminals in Gotham, he goes to Arkham Asylum, he goes to the revolving door of Arkham Asylum rather than Blackgate Penitentiary. Yeah, that was, a, that was an inspired piece of storytelling from King there. Uh, okay, up next we have Power Girl number six, Journey to Ferembia, uh, written by Leah Williams. Art is by Marguerite Savage. Letters by Becca Carey. Um, this, this was okay. Uh, what I didn't expect, what I really enjoyed, was the fact that we got a nearly silent issue, um, last issue, and this actually ties into that. It makes what Streaky was doing and going and rescuing the other pets from this lab they were being exper experimented on. It makes it make sense. It, it ties it in. It doesn't make that just kind of a standalone issue. Uh, I also really enjoyed the art from Marguerite Savage. Uh, we've talked in the past about how her art has felt very static at times. Uh, she draws a beautiful Supergirl and a beautiful uh, Power Girl here, especially when they're wearing... Uh, like tank tops and what have you. And there's these, you know, undercover as college co-eds uh, and they're, you know, they're not wearing their costumes. They, they look very beautiful. They look very young and bright and vibrant. Um, so I, I appreciated that. This whole idea of there being some sort of new designer drug that is transporting citizens of Metropolis to some other dimension it felt a little forced to me again, even though it tied in with what streaky did last issue. And I appreciated that. Um, the this narrative just didn't really feel like it was as fleshed out as it could be. And, and I, you know, nothing against Leigh Williams. I'm a fan of her writing. Maybe we just haven't gotten there yet. Maybe I just need to have a little more patience. 
Um, but as much as I love the Marguerite Sauvage art, I do also wonder, is she the right, like, like when you think of, you know, classic stories, especially DC, um, comic stories that involve drug use, um, I wouldn't talk about or, or even ever imagine putting it with Marguerite Savage's art, which her art has this kind of innocence to it. Right. Like the, the, um, the speedy, uh, you know, um, the grittiness of Neil Adams art, Denny O'Neill writing it. Or if you go on the other side of the street, uh, that famous two issues of amazing Spider-Man, I think it was one, 15, 116, somewhere, somewhere in there, somewhere in the, the, the one tens um, where Harry, Harry Osborne was taking drugs written by Jerry Conway. I think Ross Andrew was the artist again, very gritty, very visceral art. And here we have a d designer drug uh, and it's Marguerite Savage. I just, it felt a little, if I don't know, it just felt a little weird to me. It felt a little awkward. Um, but you know, maybe it'll again make more sense once it's fleshed out because this world of of Frembia is very bright and uh, almost like um, fairy tale like, and and maybe this new villain will you know she does seem a little bit like um, Maleficent like um, you know the the villain from Disney villain from Sleeping Beauty, so you know it might all tie in and at the end I'll I'll think yeah this was the right choice but right now it feels a little wonky as a choice for uh, an artist but. Um, I will say you, you were flashing through some of the covers there as well. Uh, yeah, some fantastic covers. There's a great Dan Panosian cover. Yeah, that one there. That's uh, that's just beautiful. Um, so even though it looks like Gary Frank's not doing any more covers for um, for Power Girl, we're still getting our fair share of uh, of wonderful Power Girl covers. So uh, anyway, what were your thoughts on this issue, Rocky? I uh, well, a couple of uh, nitpicks there. First of all, I. Uh, the artistic style, I got to agree. I don't, I don't like when a, it, it does feel a little bit like Barbie to me, like watching a bunch of Barbie dolls interact because of the, the style of the art. And I get it. It's stylistic and, and that's just the way it is. Um, but it, it, it goes back and forth between Marguerite uh, Sauvage's art and Marguerite Sauvage's art. And, uh, well, actually, I guess it's, 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 she's the only artist, but sometimes there's a, there's a, has a little bit of a manga or anime feel to it. Uh, and I don't, I'm not really a fan of that. It doesn't quite work well for me, but it is what it is. This whole idea of a drug, this Avalon uh, drug, which is basically it, it, you know, it's non-addictive, non-habit forming. Uh, but kids, these, these students at the university keep going missing and they end up being lost in this Ferimbia place. And this, this madam, madam, uh, madam of advice, madam of vice, is is sort of ruling this other this other place where if you take this drug you get sort of you, you get sort of transported there. It ends up that apparently both Supergirl and, and Power Girl lose their powers once they're there. A couple of a couple of nitpicks here, and I'm just just an observation. I thought it was a little disturbing that Omen decided to to manipulate the minds of the college students to try to prevent them from taking drugs. You know that's that's you know that's you know you're encroaching on uh, you know. You know that's not mind raping, but well, maybe it is. Uh, it's 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 a little bit uncomfortable that she did that, and not enough pushback, I think, from Power Girl and Supergirl. Also, and this is maybe a bigger nitpick: what on earth? Why is there a scene with Supergirl and Power Girl having to use a microscope? 
<laughs> to look. <laughs> I mean, they have microscopic vision. Why is there a scene that they're taking turns looking through a microscope? That is ridiculous. That is completely unnecessary. They don't have to do that. It doesn't make any sense. I'm pretty sure that, you know, super, you know, Kryptonians don't have to do that. Even Power Girl from a different Krypton. So I thought that was really that was really a scene that they, they should know better. Uh, there's a lot of talking heads in this issue, a lot of dialogue, which uh, it could have probably moved a little bit faster. But I get it. You got to give them something to do while they're having these conversations. But that was a misstep, I think. That was a misstep. They 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 can they can they can be a. Supergirl could be 100 miles away and, and tell you how many cells, uh, you know, a cat has, for God's sakes. And, but it, it is what it is. Uh, having said that, I, I will say that, uh, just a quick note. Some people were bitching last issue because they were upset that last issue was a, was, a, was a streaky the cat issue for the whole issue. That's actually tied in with this issue. It actually did have some narrative purpose other than just, it wasn't just a wasted issue showing us streaky. I mean, the, the lab that she rescued the cats from were actually, uh, were actually animals that were being, uh, experimented upon with this Avalon drug, which is being used here. So I thought that was a nice sort of callback to the, the previous issue, which uh, frankly, I didn't expect. So that was uh, all in all, I didn't mind this issue other than those nitpicks. Yeah. And again, don't have hard sales numbers on, on these titles, but um, just in comparison, Power Girl is one of the lower selling titles. Um, but then again, the Penguin is one of their lower selling titles too, which I just don't, it's, it's so good. Um, so <laughs> yeah, kind of wonder where, where things stand. Um, so anyway, you know, I, I might as well let that lead me into Amazon's attack because that's one of their best selling titles, which I, I guess the power of Wonder Woman, maybe the, the, the word of mouth with how great Tom <clears throat> and Daniel Samper's, uh, Wonder Woman run has been so far. Uh, and uh, make sure you watch all the way to the end because I have some news about uh, that series uh, coming up uh, later this week. But anyway, uh, Amazon Attack Part 5, Josie Campbell, the writer, Vasco Gregive, artist, Alex Squirmis, colors, Becky Carry on letters. I was surprised to see this up toward the top of uh, the list when it came to you know what DC books are selling more than, than others. Um, th this leans heavily into things that we uh, got in the trial of Amazon. So does the Artemis story that we're going to talk about later in Batman Brave and the Bold. Um, and also almost like a bridge between what we saw with trial of the Amazons and um, what we're seeing in the Wonder Woman title right now. Um, but maybe this leans a little more into the trial of the Amazons because when the uh, sort of the, the evil villain, the antagonist that stands revealed here you're sort of not surprised if you've been reading along. Um, I won't say suffering while reading along. It's not been to that point, but <laughs> there have been, uh, been times where it's been a bit of a chore to keep up with what's been going on with the Amazons, you know, trial of the Amazons, just in the title and, and the way it was promoted. And Rocky and I both admitted at the time, it, maybe it was us reading into it. I mean, you hear Amazon, you hear trial, you immediately think of some sort of physical challenge and competition or what have you. And that wasn't what it was at all. Uh, it ended up being, you know, much more of a political book. Um, but if you've been following along with everything that's been going on for the last two years and Themyscira, this will not come as a surprise when we get the villain that's to be revealed. I'll let Rocky get into the plot details of it. Um, but I'm just going to say this. I, it's not that I think the story is bad 
and the direction they're taking it is bad. And I like the way Josie Campbell gives us the comparison and um, the differences, right? She, she mentions when Hippolyta was queen, how Themyscira was a sword and it was the bulwark against man's world. Nubia, to her own admission, says, I don't want it to be a sword. I want it to be hope. I mean, just as an Amazon, as a fan of the Amazons, I think that's the wrong – I think Nubia is just wrong. I think that's the wrong tack to take um, because I don't think the world's ready for that, at least as it's been established in the DC universe currently, this uh, socio-political climate or what have you. Um, so you can see what's going on. You can kind of understand it, and you can agree or disagree with, with what's happening. Um but the, the overall political aspect of it, I think, is interesting. The problem that I have with it, it's just taking too fucking long. It's just taking too long. Like all of this, I, six issue, a six issue series with, you know, all the, the Yara Floor stuff and all the other Trial of Amazon tie-in, whatever. I think all of it, six issues come out you know, bi-weekly, even if that's what, how you want it to be and, and label it as an event and just be done with it at this point. And if you wanted it to tie in with what Tom King was going to do, do, then, you know, have it come out, you know, concurrently with the first six issues of Tom King's Wonder Woman or, or come out, you know, three months before Tom King's Wonder Woman. It's just taken too long. It's dragged out so long. It makes the Amazons feel boring because it takes so long to get anywhere, to do anything. And that's the biggest problem that I have with it. I don't have a problem with the art. I think Vasco Gregov's art is fantastic. I like the characterization that Josie Campbell is giving these characters, even though I don't agree with, with Nubia's uh, views and beliefs and stance. I understand why she has them with where she is as a character and where she's come from. Um, you know, coming from the well of souls and being reincarnated uh, from, you know, a woman that suffered in a previous life and all that. I can understand her wanting to be more hopeful and not wanting you know, to be a realist, basically, um, and take a more kind of um, militant stance the way uh, Hippolyta did. I, I completely understand all of it. Um, and I think Josie Campbell does a good job, but it, it just it's just taking too long. And, you know, we talked about it when Yara Floor first came out. You were much more interested in Yara Floor as a character than I was. I could pretty much leave her right from the start. Um, but even that Yara Floor series that Joel Jones did, like, again, it just dragged and nothing happened. And we got bored. Even you got bored with the character because nothing's been done. Nothing's been done with her. And I think that's the problem with the, the Amazons. And if we look at what's been happening in um, the Tom King Wonder Woman series, there could be an argument that maybe it's a little bit too decompressed at times, but o overall the series, you know, we talked about it when we talked about the very first issue, how it was a truncated timeline. Like it went from the event in Billings, Montana to all of a sudden all the Amazons are, are banned. They should need to be extradited, all that. Like things were moving quickly. When you look at an in individual issue, sometimes it doesn't cover a, a large period of time, but you sometimes you get time jumps in an issue or time jumps between issues and things at least feel like they're, they're moving. Maybe not as fast as we would like, but certainly in that series, it's paced much quicker than the rest of the uh, Amazonian titles have been for the last two years, I, I would argue. Um, so yeah, not surprised who the villain is, what the fallout is going to be has me curious. Uh, but if you want to keep any other Wonder Woman tangential series going, 
you need to pick up the pace, DC. You got to you got to pick up the pace. It just it just takes it's just taking too long to get where we are with the Amazons. And also, you know, I like the idea of Nubia as a character. I was more interested in Nubia than Yara Floor when it felt like they were trying to put the spotlight on her. But I, I I've kind of had enough. I, I sort of feel like the reason part of the reason things move so slow is Nubia is sort of wishy washy. She doesn't make decisions. She's always consulting other Amazons. What should I do? Blah blah blah. At least Apollo had some agency, you know. Get Apollo out of the god realm, put her back on the throne, and let's just have a little bit quicker paced stories. Because I, I think that's really been the biggest downfall um, is just the pacing. You know, we could argue whether or not the stories were strong during the Clune Red run or what have you, um, you know, and that's debatable. But regardless of who, who's been writing things lately, um, it's just been moving too damn slow. So uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, yeah, honestly, I, I, I've said a number of times in the past where the worst thing I can do as a reviewer, I think, is review the comic I want it to be as opposed to the comic that it actually is. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I don't like the story here. I don't like the plotting. I don't like the plot itself. I don't like the apples of discard. I think it's grounded too much mythology. I think that the, the inherent strengths of Tom King's run was that it actually it it it. it it forces like humanity, humanity confronts the Amazons from a humanity's perspective and, uh, and from the, the aspect of maybe bigotry and even misandry and misogyny. And, and while it might be political, it is what it is, but it, 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 you know, to me, it sidesteps the issue when we drown this side story in mythology. And so we got Heracles here as the villain or some, some unknown force and some, some asylum, some mystical place. I just don't care about that. I mean, that, what does that have to do? We have an entire world that's against the Amazons. Deal with that. Uh, and then, and then even we get this at one point while, at one point while we have, uh, you know, Faruka who, who ends up being taken over. I'm not even sure if Faruka betrays the Amazons or if she's controlled. It looks like she's being controlled by, by Heracles or who's the main bad guy here. Or maybe Heracles is just an illusion. I don't really know, but it just, it just seems like I, I don't. It, it, it just seems like you, it's just going to be grounded in mythology again and none of it's going to have any consequence. It, it's not clear to me other than, I mean, on the periphery, Peacemaker's in here. And, he's, and of course, uh, Josie Campbell does a good job here of scripting Peacemaker and all the Amazons, quite frankly. Josie Campbell is doing a good job with the story that she has created, that she's done. OK, it's 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 you know, it's it's OK. It's just not compelling to me. And we're not really getting to know all the characters. And even Nubia, Nubia, there's a scene here where, you know, they're teleporting all over the place. They're being chased by the Peacemaker and, and, uh, and Hoppy the Rabbit, who is the sidekick to Mary Marvel, is teleporting them all over the place. And they get teleported from, uh, to, uh, from India to Santa Fe to the Garden of Hesperiti and uh, Tunisia. And they get... They teleport all over the place. And then in the midst of this, they end up in, I think, someplace in India. A kid ends up shooting Nubia because he panics. And and then it just sort of, it takes an odd turn. And then Nubia gets all frustrated and she cries out in anger. And it, you know, you've said it before. And I know this was, it's the intention of the story. But you've mentioned before how incompetent Nubia is as a queen. And while on the one hand, she's definitely not a Mary Sue. 
Nubia. You can't say that about her. She definitely makes mistakes, and I appreciate that those those flaws in her character. Uh, but I wish there'd be some more acknowledgement on her part and consequence to those failures, other than always being propped up here, because it kind of frustrates me. Even even when Faruka sort of betrays the Amazons and she she she's talking about how the Bannamcdoll are are you know they hate man's world and they they're justifying you know and 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 they're. To, you know, I've said before that I think that there's an, an ample, a lot of reason why the Amazons need to get better as, as, as a race. They really, truly do, that they have misandry. There's never an acknowledgement of the flaws of the Amazonian society, how they can change. Change begins with them. This inherent assumption that somehow humanity has to be the only one that changes. It's inherent in this story again. And again, I don't want to go off on a tangent, uh, but... Uh, I actually enjoy this story more than it is. I want to give Josie Campbell some credit because she's she's this is actually better than I thought it was. And I want to give I, I got to be a little maybe a little critical of Tom King because I don't think his story. I mean, let me just say this. Look at all the villains that Wonder Woman fought in Wonder Woman number six. And this we don't have a single one of those villains that any of the Wonder Girls here are confronting Nubia. Where's Grail in this one? Where's Cersei here? Where's the angle man here? I mean, if this is a genuine crossover, where are those villains? Well, I, I know what the answer is. Tom King won't let them play in that sandbox because those villains have to be in Wonder Woman. I'm guessing. I apologize to Tom King if that's not the case, but I would have liked to have seen more of that. You got awesome characters to play with and none of them. The most boring one. Heracles? Really? Apples of Discord? Really? Why not have the Sovereign make an appearance or an underling of the Sovereign or all that? And again, I'm sorry, I'm playing script doctor, but, and maybe Josie Campbell couldn't do that. But it just seems to me that it's a squandered, it's a missed opportunity, and it's such an obvious one. And again, to me, it's, it's, it's a case of not giving the fans what it's fairly obvious we would want if you know what the story is on Tom King, assuming that she even knew it in the first place. But in any event, not bad, I, I guess, given what she had to play with. But I, I wish I was expecting a little bit more. And I agree with you. It does seem to drag on a little bit. But it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a crossover or a tie-in to the Tom King, uh, Daniel Samper, Wonder Woman series, like in the in the most token fashion. Like yes, they're mentioning the events. They're mentioning that Amazons are are the enemy. That's that's sort of the initial starting point. But other than that, it's not really a it's not really a crossover in any other way, shape, or form. Um, and so, and, and I do, you know, I take your point. Those villains are much more interesting than Heracles or uh, a, a betrayer, a, a Faruka who is a betrayer. They're much more interesting than that. But at the same time, like I said, this feels like it's a little bit of a bridge between the two. Um, so, you know, and those are technically Wonder Woman's rogues gallery, not Nubia's or, or you know, Yara Flores or, or whatever. So I don't know. I'll certainly um, find out. I'll certainly, you know, bring that up. But um, the other thing that I wanted to, uh, to mention here is as far as Faruka betraying, uh, yes, maybe she's being influenced by an apple of discord. Maybe she's being influenced by Heracles, but I, I sort of feel it's one of those things, uh, you know, the old cliche, like when, you, when you're hypnotized, even though you're hypnotized, you still wouldn't do something that you're like morally object to. This yeah. goes all the way back to, you know, Nubia being acknowledged as the queen of all three tribes. And, and that never sat right with Faruka. She was very antagonistic. The, that entire trial of the Amazon event. So I sort of took this to be like, 
she agreed at the time to kind of save face in front of all the other Amazons, but maybe was planning this all along or, (laughs) or was looking for an opportunity to, you know, put one over on Nubia. So I I don't know how much she's being controlled or how much she's allowing herself to be controlled, or maybe she's just thrown in with, uh, Heracles. So I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we will. Uh, Up next, we have Jay Garrick, the flash number five, the doctor is in, this is from writer Jeremy Adams. Diego Orlatuga is the artist. Luis Guerrero on color. Steve Wands on letters. Very dynamic art as it's been throughout. Um, Diego Orlatuga, it's it's like I see so many influences on his art. I can see some Scott <clears throat> Collins here. Uh, maybe I, I haven't seen that previously uh, because it looks like a little bit more texture here. Um, and the art, the line work isn't quite as clean as it's been. And so for that reason, I'm also getting a little bit of um, – uh, uh, Dijon Domenico, um, as well. So, yes. uh, I mean, the art is still very solid. If I had any preference at all, um, I would like, I, I think, uh, Carmen A. Dijon Domenico, his line work is a little, uh, finer. His line weights aren't quite so heavy. I probably say the same thing for Scott Collins. Um, but again, you know, Orla Tuga is going to, going to do what, what he does uh, and he hundred percent should have his own style. But when it comes to drawing books with speedsters, I've talked about this before. Uh, I think a fine, what you get with a finer line is more of a sense of movement. When you're using a real thick line for your line work, it, it, it really feels like it's down into the page, which doesn't promote movement, right? It, pr- it promotes a feeling of, of being powerful and being uh, sort of unmovable and, and very solid. So I do think it would work a little better if he was using a line weight that wasn't quite so, uh, quite so thick, but uh, again, just kind of nitpicking because overall the art is very dynamic and he has some very good story uh, telling instincts, um, especially when we're talking about uh, a father who, who is really old enough to be the grandfather, if not the great grandfather of his child, because she was missing so long and she's, you know, just come back. And he's got the balance of her being a hero and he's trying to protect her because she's been missing so long. Like there's some real dramatic tension there when it comes to that. And we've seen it in the story a couple of times when Jay has told Judy, Hey, you need to, you need to hide out. You need to stay on the sidelines. You need to not, you know, be involved. She's a Garrick. She's a flash. She's going to get out there and, and, you know, try to do her best. You can't sideline her. Uh, and so I do uh, really appreciate that part of the story. Uh, from Jeremy Adams. As far as the story itself, you know, we talked about it last time, how it's tying into the origin of Star Labs and this Dr. Elemental, tied into things from the past, Golden Age and what have you. Really appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate that Dr. Midnight, one of uh, Jake Garrick's old Justice Society teammates, shows up here uh, as well. So that was fantastic. Uh, and even though the you know best laid plans and Jay and Dr. Midnight go out and they're trying to fight off the robo-gorilla, the forces of Dr. Elemental. He's one step ahead of them. Uh, even though you would think nobody would be one step ahead of Jay Garrick. He's the flash. It, it's uh, a Dr. bear. Elemental. It's a robo bear, not a gorilla. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> robo bear. Yeah, sorry, I have the jail ape on my mind coming up uh, from DC this summer. But anyway, yeah, Dr. Elemental sneaks in behind them, kidnaps Judy, uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. But uh, as we've come to expect from Jeremy Adams, very well-paced, very fun issue, very um, brightly colored, uh, and 
yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything negative to say. Uh, it, it does feel a, a little bit like a transitional issue. <clears throat> I mean, the big things that happen here are, well, there's really only one and that's Dr. Elemental kidnapping Judy. Um, the rest of it is just all sort of set up a little bit, a little bit of the fallout from last issue and then set up for um, the big climax of the story, I guess you'd say. Uh, but, you know, again, you have to have these sort of issues that set things up and, and put things in place, even though it may feel a little bit down in terms of impact. That way you can have the high of however the story is going to wrap up. So we'll see. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Rock? Yeah, I don't have much to add. You know, uh, frankly, from a plot perspective, not a lot happens. But this is where the artist uh, Diego Olatega, artist, I, I butchered his name. He hits where he shines. Uh, Leo Guerrero's coloring just—it's—it absolutely pops off the page. It's fantastic. <clears throat> I had a lot of fun reading this. A lot of fun, just like sort of like paging through it. Just—it's—it's it's a lot of fun. The art's fantastic. The uh, Jeremy Adams on on the scripting, the dialogue is great. I, I love the relationship between uh, G, uh, the Boom Judy Garrick and her father uh, Jay Garrick, and uh, also kudos to Jeremy Adams for Joel Cyclone uh, utilizing the name of the first Flash in Brazil. I, I actually Googled that because I, I thought Joel. I, when, when I first when I first saw the word when when Mister when Doctor Midnight first appeared, I didn't realize that was Doctor Midnight. I thought maybe it was a new character. <laughs> because he says uh, uh, he mentions Joel Cyclone, and I thought is that a new character? No, that's Joel Cyclone is the name of the first Flash in Brazil, and it's got like all kinds of Golden Age origins apparently, and and that is of course Doctor Midnight, and so I, I like that, and you know just because I've been reading comic books a long time, I I can't I am always reminded of how bad my memory is. If I did know that at one time, I completely forgot. And I love callbacks like that. If I Google something and I realize, oh my God, that's that's a nice callback. Again, kudos to Jeremy Adams. Did a great job. And I also like how Jeremy Adams, every time he gets his shipment of comic books, he always does like a quick like 15, 30 second video <laughs> with his kids holding his iPhone <laughs> and, he, and he puts it on Twitter or, or uh, uh, on YouTube just to show him. He's, he's like a kid in a candy store opening up his own comic books that he wrote. So it's it's just fantastic. So uh, kudos to Jeremy for that. And, I, you know, again, I, I, I enjoyed this issue. And uh, like I said, it is a setup issue, but it's great setup. And it's, it's, it, it's, there's not, I don't mind a great setup issue or it's sort of like Wonder Woman number six. Okay. You can say not much happened, but look at that. Look at that gorgeous fight scene. We got but that incredible action that we got by Daniel Semper and Wonder Woman number six here. We got fantastic art, great action with the flashes and Dr. Elemental uh, along with Dr. Midnight. So it was pretty good stuff. So I enjoyed this issue. Jeremy Adams continues to do a great job, a pretty good creative team. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a stark contrast to the book we're going to talk about next, which is <clears throat> The Flash, the book Jeremy Adams came off of, issue number six, The Gift, written by Simon Spurrier, art by Mike Diodato Jr., colors <clears throat> by Trish Hill, letters by Hassan Otsman El Hal. Uh, you remember how I was talking about those, um, those sales numbers? Yeah. This one's been steadily decreasing, and, and that happens to every book. Right, every book there's attrition. That's why so many times we get so many number ones. Right, get a sales bump of number one, nowhere near the bump you used to get. Uh, and then you know eventually it gets down to the point where they cancel and they come out with a new number one, a little bit of a, and people just think of it as a jumping on point. Uh, but when you compare the numbers of what my understanding of what Flash is doing now versus what it was doing, yeah, it's it's night and day. It's apples and oranges. And 
if you pick up the book and have been trying to understand what's going on, you can like it makes sense. This story is nearly incomprehensible. Uh, what Simon Spurrier is doing, uh, and, and you know, a lot of times it's word salad. Especially, it felt like word salad early on in the first couple issues. I don't get the feeling as much anymore that it's word salad, but I think it's only making sense to him. Um, what's going on? Because first of all, he knows the ending of the story. He knows where it goes. And maybe by the time we get to the end, it'll make sense to the rest of us as well. But in the meantime, yeah. you know, no matter how many times you read the issues, you just end up scratching your head going, wait, what's going on? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going on if you're completely, <laughs> con completely confused. I can. It's actually very simple. There's something wrong with the Speed Force. <gasps> <laughs> Wait, that's not an original idea. No, it's not an original idea. We talked about it from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the first issue, we said, yeah, the premise of this is there's something wrong with the Speed Force. Uh, and you're going to dash all this supposed cosmic horror and gobbledygook scientific language and what have you on there to try to dress it up. But at the end of the day, something's wrong with the Speed Force. And lo and behold, to absolutely zero, I could not be less surprised by this revelation, also not original at all, the cause of the something wrong with the Speed Force is Wally West himself. <gasps> no, right? Shocked, shocked. Yes, <sighs> Wally West himself, who, you know, in whatever way this time for this writer is actually the cause of the problem with the Speed Force. Wait, didn't yeah. we just have a movie with uh, Ezra Miller where he was the cause? Didn't we have Flashpoint, a giant event, years ago that led to the new 52 that time it was barry allen but again this is this is redundant it's been done before and if you're trying to dress it up with different art from mike diodato which is you know the style he's using very complicated very beautiful very technically well done very nice to look at uh, but i've talked about it before when you have this overly complicated narrative with all this word salad and then you have panels that are constantly breaking the gutters and it just makes it feel even more busy and even more confusing. Like if I were to just flip through this and not read any of this dialogue at all and just enjoy it for the art and be like, ah, this is cool. What he's doing is sort of dynamic, but it doesn't work for the story because the story's overly complicated and doesn't make sense. And you have art that's overly complicated for that type of story. Um, you know, he used the same sort of style in the, um, in one of the latest infinity events. Um, where you had the, uh, I can't remember what they were called now. They, Marvel, they crossed over. It was like Doctor Strange and Captain America were like crossed over or whatever. Um, but anyway, that that was kind of a complicated story too. And I, I, I sort of felt the same way about this style. Uh, I think this style would work really well for like a crime noir uh, or something like that, where it's a lot more simple or maybe like a science, an old school science fiction story like Adam Strange or Superman out in space or, or even a, a Green Lantern cosmic story where the narrative's a little bit more simple. But for here, it doesn't work because it's not simple. I mean, the art itself uh, as a standalone is gorgeous, but I just don't think it works for this story. And again, I don't think the story is very original. I'm not enjoying it. There's so many extraneous words that there's no reason for it. And the last thing that I'll mention, and this is just a personal thing, and I've mentioned this many times on the show before, when you have things that are happening um, dramatic tension or um, things going sideways only because heroes are not forthcoming or characters are not forthcoming 
with each other. That drives me crazy. It's the laziest form of writing. And I've made this comparison before as well. It's like an episode of Three's Company. There's always a misunderstanding. Why? Because people don't talk to each other. Wally's got secrets from Linda. Linda's got secrets from Wally. Wally's got secrets from Barry. Barry's got like, no, these are yeah. people that have known each other for years. They tr they've been, they've saved the universe together. They've died and come back. I mean, go back and think about one of the most impactful moments in DC comics in decades, I would argue, right? Barry and Wally, that moment when Wally's pulled back, when he's, again, something wrong with the speed force, right? That moment scripted by Jeff Johns, rebirth, he pulls yep. Wally out. People, people cried, people teared up. They've, these men have been through that together. And you're going to tell me that they're going to be pissy with, with each other and keep secrets from each other. I don't buy it. It's lazy writing to bring dramatic tension, to give an excuse for why things are going sideways and not working. I just, I don't like it at any point. I, I guess maybe it's just because that's the way I am in life. Like if something's wrong and I know why something's wrong, I, I tell the person, Hey, this is wrong. I might need your help to fix it. What insight do you have? What opinion? Are you aware of any of this? They don't do that. Are you kidding me? And it leads to problems. Again, super lazy. I, 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 I've never been. I can't remember ever being less disappointed in a Flash book. I think I said it before. I haven't been this down on the Flash since. Barry was on trial and it was dragging out <laughs> you. And this goes back to Flash Volume 1, like issue 325 to 350. I mean, that is – that's pre-crisis, people. That's pre-crisis. In my opinion, this is the worst Flash series in 30, 40 years. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I, I don't mean – again, I, I don't think he's <laughs> a bad writer. I don't think Mike Diodato is a bad artist. I love what Ty Spurrier is doing on John Constantine. This is just the wrong character and, and the wrong story for these characters. It just isn't working. And the sales, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know, depending on your point of view, are bearing that out. Um, and I actually – to the point where I'd read this – a couple times to make sure I understood it. And I'm like, yeah, I understand it. And it's something's wrong with the feeds force. And Wally's the problem. Okay, here we go again. I went to comic book roundup and I was looking at the scores and yeah, just like the sales are trending down. The scores are for this are, are trending uh, down pretty, pretty quickly uh, from that first issue. I think it's, it's like got a, about a nine, a little above a nine for, um, for the critic and, and right around nine for the, uh, uh, for the fans and yeah. cr the critic scores on average scores have dropped faster than the fan scores have dropped, but it's like low sevens now. And yeah. and that's only through the first five issues because, you know, this issue barely came out. It hasn't had a chance to be up there yet. So yeah, it's, this is just not a good flash story. Unfortunately, it just, it's one of those things where you can put talented people together and unfortunately, it just it's it's not it's not working out. You know, you can get a bunch of great flavors, doesn't mean they're going to work together. You know, hey, here's some chocolate ice cream, here's some tomato soup, uh, here's some chocolate candy. Separately, they're all great. Throw them in a blender, mix them up. Eh, probably not so good. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. Rocky, enlighten me. Tell me how great this comic uh, is. Well, no, you're not. <clears throat> I mean, I could. Um... 
I mean, I could offer you a, a drink of, of scotch, of your favorite scotch on the rocks, or instead of that, I could offer you a complex chemical formula along with the complex chemical formula that makes up ice, and you wouldn't know what I'm talking about, and you'd probably, under, you'd probably wonder why I just didn't, well, Rocky, why didn't you just ask me if I wanted my favorite scotch on, on rocks, on the rocks? And I'd wow. say, yeah, you're probably right. Well, I would say, well, I'm Cy Spurrier. Okay. If there is, like you said, if there's an easy way of saying something, and then there is a, a pretentious, unnecessary way of saying something. And when you, and what makes this so out of place for the flash is that Wally West is the last character that Wally West has always been a character that when he needs help, he asks for it. I mean, it's fairly obvious. And the one time he didn't ask for help was in Heroes in Crisis, one of the most revealed, uh, reviled uh, event Wally West stories in, in modern comics history. And, uh, and that's just the way it is. But, but, but like you said, I mean, yeah, something's wrong with the Speed Force. But just, just to give you some of the, just to give people who aren't reading this, uh, I mean, the, the, the stillness, the uncoiled, which are these bad, Bad interdimensional beings show up. These and the and the uns, and the stillness or the pardon me the uncoiled. They are devourers of rotting time. So they're somehow Barry and Wally can look at the uncoiled and then they just know that they're rotting time, whatever that means. The stillness shows up and they offer Barry Allen a tapered D hyphen brain. What's a tapered D brain? We're never told. Uh, and the tapered D brain helps to cleanse the corruption of rotting time. What does that mean? I don't know. The visuals don't help because in fairness and in defense of the one of my favorite artists, Mike Deodato Jr., how the hell do you draw rotting time? I mean, I don't think he knows. And I mean, it's not his fault that he doesn't know how to draw it. And it's not my fault that I don't know how to see it. Um, you know, Jay shows up, asks, talks, talks, well, he talks to his uncle Barry, a dad, you know, and he says, dad, come to the school. All the kids at the school have become ghosts and ghosts seem to be uh, sort of from another dimension, sort of like leaking into our time period. Um, the students are frozen in time and the ghosts, these ghosts are bleeding in from a different dimension. The kids are terrified because time is bleeding. Um, Linda then shows up and then Wally decides to, because, because they're, they're traveling at super speed, but Wally decides out of the blue to give Linda, uh, uh, a Three Stooges mask. So I guess he's afraid somebody's going to recognize Linda. I, I, I guess while they're you know vibrating at super speed and 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 uh, it just seems so odd to me. And and then what's causing this this time to bleed and and people to freeze in time and all these ripples? I don't. We don't really know. But we're all of a sudden out of the blue at the end. Barry Allen is revealed to have been possessed by the crown of thorns. What's the crown of thorns? We don't know, but the crown of thorns, which is maybe Eobard, Eobard Thon, is claiming that he, they want to use Wally West as a conduit weapon to shoot him into the source of creation, a spider virus that freezes time called the Corona Contrarium. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what is this entity called the crown of fronds? I don't know, but we, we have this really odd looking, uh, 
a face with what looks to be a bunch of upside down fronds in as uh, forming a brain surrounded by Mirror Master and Gorilla Grodd and two other presumably members of the rogues gallery of, of the Flash. I, I don't really know what's going on now. Uh, could it be explained? Maybe. I will say this in defense of Cy Spirier, and it's a it's a it's a weak defense. But I I was looking. There are aspects of this that are kind of cool. There are aspects when I get get a tidbit of what the uncoiled are with what uh, the uh, the stillness does, and or when I see the pilgrim from last issue when he's talking with young Jay, talking about Jay's powers, and he's from the future, and he's sort of being a little bit mysterious in how he's talking. There are bits and pieces that whet my appetite, but then as a whole. I just lose interest in the whole because of there's so many individual, superfluous, pretentious exposition that I just sort of like, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss to know what the hell's going on. And it's, unfortunately, it's extremely frustrating. And I know what's going to happen. And, and you, you implied it. You implied what's going to happen. At the end, somebody is going to realize, one of the characters is going to realize that nobody knows what's going on and they're going to finally tell the reader what happened. And then Cy Spirier, in his defense, when he gives interviews, he's going to he's gonna say, well, I don't know why nobody didn't know what was going on. I said, I told you what was going on. <laughs> that's what's going to happen because that's all, all writers must defend their work. And by the way, we, did, we sung Cy Spirier's praises when we reviewed uh, Hell on Earth, Hellblazer. So, uh, you know, uh, but... You know, we, we call them like we see them on the flash. So, but uh, yeah, this was a miss for me. Yeah. And I, I didn't mention the Eobard Don tie in at the end, but I, I guess Cy Spurrier was like, just in case I'm not being redundant enough with something on the screen. <laughs> and it's being caused by Wally West. Let me also bring in the most overused flash villain of all time, Eobard Don, uh, in, in all different iterations. Okay. There we go. Anyway, enough yeah. said about that. Let's move on uh, to a, a book that I have been enjoying more than you, which is really such a um, a unique thing to have with Harley Quinn. <laughs> Typically, you're more of a fan of her than, than me, but I think we're going to be on the same page with this one. So, uh, And there are some things to like. It's the end of this multiversal Harley story, at least it appears to be, uh, written by Tinny Howard. There are a ton of artists on here because she's pop, bopping around through different um, parts of the multiverse. And so... Like when, for example, when she's in the dark multiverse, it's drawn by uh, Kelly Jones. She's in the regular world, Sweeney Boo. Logan Farber gives us sort of this uh, black and white first page. We have Elena G. Banish doing some art, Stefano Raphael, Mindy Lee, Marguerite Savage. Um, and then as far as colors go, we have Jose Villarubia, Steve Wands handles the letters for everything. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy right now because somebody opened the garage door. Um, but anyway, <laughs> after everything that's been going on and it's been such a big deal that Harley Quinn has had these multiversal powers and she's been pulling different things out of the multiverse here and there and everywhere. And, um, and these brothers, I want to understand, at least that's what we were told. And it was kind of a unique thing that, uh, Tinny Howard did. And I, I thought it was interesting. These brothers, I, they're trying to see how they can fit in that they don't fit in very well in, into the multiverse and and they're going to Harley and they're saying you've managed to have all these different versions of yourself um, and and you've managed to be accepted and, and we want to understand how you do that and what have you um, and she said oh you know okay I'll I'll give in to what you want I'll let you examine me 
Uh, but first, and this happened last issue, but first let me go have a moment with, with Ivy. And so she does that. And then what happens in the story is she does basically surrender to the brother's eye and they send her to all these different multiverses, all these different versions of DC multiverse to see how she interacts there, to see how she fits in. And I guess they're trying to understand how they can have her versatility of character to get a little bit meta. Um, but they're trying to sort of pigeonhole her and, and that's kind of where they lose. And, and again, it, it makes sense from a storytelling standpoint, the brother's eye are, it's a computer, right? It's going to think of everything in absolutes, you know, ones and zeros, black and white, however you want to think about it. And, you know, Harley's human and she's been a little more than insane at various times. And she's kind of zany and wacky, whatever. So you can't even necessarily predict her behavior based on any sort of logic it, that's just who she is as a character. Um, so she's going through, they're sending her through different parts of the multiverse and they're trying to understand. And eventually she's just sort of gives up and she says, you guys are, you think you're projecting me through the multiverse, but you're not, I'm still here on earth. You're just projecting these images into my brain, trying to glean this knowledge. And I'm, I'm sort of fighting against it to protect my students and, and to protect everybody else that's there in, in Gotham. That's where the brothers, I have her at this big intersection or in front of this theater or wherever it is. Um, and she basically gives up. She says, look, if you, this isn't a secret. If you really want to know, just, you know, delve in. There's no reason to try to fool me by bopping me around to these different, um, you know, kind of hollow decks, if you will, and trying to glean the knowledge, just strap me down and take a look. And so that's what they do. And it comes across as this entire, uh, Tinny Howard run has been this, has been this multiversal story, and she allows him to, to strap her down, and they take a look, and they go, oh, she just sort of accepts herself for who she is. Okay. And that's it. It's just over. Like, they just scan her. <laughs> they say, scan's complete. Uh, she's not a danger to the multiverse. She's a gift because, you know, everybody loves her, and uh, you know, the brother's eye find out that she, she, you know, she's a unique individual. They, they, it's not the solution. They can't replicate, you know, whatever it is about her that allows her to be so malleable. Well, why would that be a shock guys? You're robots. She's human. And she's maybe the most unpredictable human because she has these psychological issues or whatever. It just came across as so anticlimactic. I was, I wouldn't say disappointed, but I was just like, Huh. That 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 why did I re, what uh, what? I just it was built up to be this huge thing um and I think in execution it just and, and you know part of it was like when you give me that rev, revelation that they nothing they find in Harley's replicable. She's not a a danger to the multiverse or whatever. Like give me at least like a big splash page to say that, but it just, it just looks like a regular page. It just looks like a regular page. And then the, the whole story, uh, it ends a page later after Harley goes around to the, the, the multiversal quark family goes, Hey, you know, thanks for helping me. Everything's hunky dory. Now, like it was the whole multiverse was, uh, was in danger, right? You had the, the sort of, um, whatever that Harley, I can't remember what the Harley 2.0 Harley.exe villain. Um, <laughs> yeah. like it, it was such a danger. And 
it's just it, it almost felt like okay i only have three pages left on on my arc i gotta end this so here we go let me just snap the fingers and we'll just it'll just be over ah it turns out you can't replicate harley but the brothers i are cool with it story's over what uh, yeah it, it was yeah wasn't a fan of the way that it ended uh and the backup um i'll give i guess i should give the credits for the backup um it's from erica henderson she writes it she draws it and we've got um letters by hassan otsman elhow and it's harley like out in the woods confronting different versions of the joker including the killing joke version the jack nicholson version the um caesar romero version i eh these these backups where harley's dreaming have you know we've talked about them before they, they're so unnecessary uh i guess it's just a chance for people that wouldn't normally get a chance to work on harley to work on harley so yeah one one of the more disappointing issues of harley quinn we've had in a while didn't didn't care for this one at all the way this wrapped up especially because i've been the one that's been kind of yeah this has been interesting harley quinn you know tied into the multiverse how's where's this gonna go and it just it ended on the wimpiest of whimpers. Yeah. Wasn't a fan. So, uh, what'd you think of it, Rocky? Uh, well, I didn't, I, I didn't like it, but I haven't been enjoying it at all since Teeny Howard started her run period. In fact, I, I was, I would suggest that the way Teeny Howard wrote her early Catwoman issues when she started Catwoman, when Harley Quinn went on road trips with uh, that road trip with Catwoman, that was more of a Harley Quinn adventure than a Catwoman one. In my view, uh, this, I, I wasn't a fan of, but uh, I'll, I'll stand by you, your comments on it because I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I just want to give some, you know, my two cents worth of, uh, of advice as just as a, as a, as a Harley fan, I'm not a Harley fan. I haven't been for quite a while because of writing like this. And I'll tell you why. If you're going to write a Harley Quinn multiverse story, understand that those of us that, that aren't fans of certain iterations of Harley, that if you're going to do a multiversal, understand that the, if, if there are different versions of Harley Quinn in the multiverse, there's a whole pile of them that are evil. And that are cold-blooded killers. And they have zero redeeming qualities. So show that. But I, I get it. You want to be... A, this whole thing is a parody. Everything's a joke. It's unfair for me to, unfair for me to criticize. She's critic... You, you can't criticize Harley because she's crazy and she's happy-go-lucky and everything. Um, I just... Everything about this, from the approach to the character, the way it was done with the story, everything, e- even the misunderstanding of Brother Eye, everything about it, I just... It just... It just absolutely rubbed me the wrong way i just wasn't a fan of it and it, it's finally over and i'm not sure what the point was and i guess the and the point was and and this was your frustration too and i and i sympathize with you because you give me your sympathy sometimes when i feel so passionate about something only to be maybe a little bit down at the end is that you know at the end of the day this sort of sort of abruptly ends and then all of a sudden all 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 Harley had to do to resolve matters was just, you know, fall asleep on an operating table and let a let, let brother I dissect her brain a little bit. And yeah, I don't know what we learned about Harley here. What did Harley learn about herself? What is the reader supposed to learn about Harley? Uh, is Harley a danger to the multiverse? Of course not. There's only one person who's a danger to the multiverse, and that's Dark Side. And maybe you can come up with a handful of others. But Harley Quinn, come on. Uh, 
and I realize it's a Harley Quinn comic and it's meant to be a joke and a parody. But then if you're not going to approach it with some degree of, of maturity and some verisimilitude, I don't know why you even bother, quite frankly. But I'm glad it's over. Next issue, it's going to be uh, Harley Quinn's birthday. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what that, that turns out to be. But this could have been told in a single issue. It should have been told in a single issue. And for me, this was a miss. And that's my mini rant. Uh, but I'm glad you enjoyed it more than me. <laughs> Yeah, and, and again, the art here, seeing these different, you know, multiversal lo locales, even though they're all in Harley's mind, it, it's well done. I mean, that is true. The art's very well yeah. done. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. not the biggest Kelly Jones fan either, but when you talk about somebody to draw the dark multiverse, yeah, who better than Kelly Jones? So, yeah, the, the, the choices of which artist to match up with which part of the multiverse worked very well. Um, all right, up next we have Batman Brave and the Bold. There's five stories, so we'll try to fly through them. There's Batman Mother's Day Part 1, Carl Kershaw, writer and artist, M. Sassiak on colors, Steve Wands on letters, Artemis, The Poison Within Part 1, Delilah S. Dawson, the writer, Serge Acuna and George Combatis are the artists, Matt Herms on colors, Dave Sharp on letters, Nameless, Matt Harding is the writer, Mike Henderson on art, Adam Gwazowski on colors, Troy Petrie on letters, Lois Lane, The Game Prologue, by Torin Gronbeck, who, as far as I know, has only done Marvel work. I think this might be her first DC work. She's done some Avengers stuff, a lot of Thor work. Um, Tom, Tom Derenick is the artist on that one. Lee Luffridge on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. And finally, Batman the Cheeseburger, written by Dan Waters. Ricardo Lopez Ortiz is the artist. Troy Petrie on letters. So we'll kick it off with Mother's Day. It's a Batman Maps Maguchi story. Um, I thought it was okay. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Gotham Academy and Maps Maguchi as, um, as Rocky is. So he, he may be a little more invested in it. I thought it was a, so a solid story. I'm a big fan of Carl Kershaw, both uh, as a writer and an artist. Uh, one of the things I liked is this does feel sort of timeless and tying in with that is the bat Batman's wearing his old blue and gray costume. Uh, so I really liked that. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. Man bat uh, appears to be um, one of the, uh, Supporting characters, but there's a younger um, character who's also apparently aff afflicted with a very similar uh, condition to Man Bat, uh, who appears to be the antagonist of the story, who I'm not really familiar with. But again, they the way they talk about him seems like maybe he was a Gotham Academy character as well. So if you're missing Gotham Academy, you know it was Carl Kershaw that was a big part of that, along with Becky Cloonan. Um, so I definitely would recommend picking this up. Uh, what do you think of the first story, Rock? Uh, yeah, I. I, I thought it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was, uh, you know, Maps, Ma Mazaguchi, their Maps, who fancies herself sort of a sidekick or, or Batman's Robin, but ba Batman just always refuses to acknowledge that she's a Robin. But Batman always will call her whenever he needs some information about any, anything to do with Gotham Academy. Uh, he goes to Maps. He's She's sort of like the go-to student that ha that helps out Batman. And uh, uh, Bat Batman in this one, Bruce Wayne is dating an, a, a new uh, a new woman, uh Isla, who is, uh, I guess, one of the uh, one of the one of the one of the teachers there, and um, it's uh, something's going on. Uh, somebody uh, maps, uh, and it involves one of the students, Tristan, and um, 
And it looks like you said there's a this sort of man bat character. So something's going on. We don't exactly know what, but it's linked to Gotham uh, Gotham Academy. Maps is getting near the end of it. Bat, Bruce Wayne's investigating it. Unfortunately, Bruce Wayne in an in, in investigation he invites this Isla character to a ball. He ends up having to betray her. So it's sort of like Bruce Wayne sort of using another woman to, to uh, for his own purposes for for his for being Batman, only to end up having to uh, unfortunately you know he ends up being caught in a precarious position with another woman and she gets a little bit jealous and i thought it was you know really well done and uh, you know be nice it would be nice if this was in like a full 20 page uh, comic so maybe it could end but i thought it was i thought it was interesting i like i'm curious to see where it leads and batman's relationship with maps i think this is something that's building organically and because everyone's focused on when you we think back about how batman's relationships with jason todd developed with with dick grayson with with damien with tim drake you know batman is slowly developing a relationship a, a batman slash robin relationship with maps and that's pretty cool and we should remember that the older version of maps is in birds of prey the future version of maps who who can time travel and uh and so th- that's interesting there that that maps and only has that origins as a potential learning the ropes as a young wannabe Robin at Gotham Academy. So it's pretty cool. So as a maps fan, I enjoyed this first issue. This this first story. Yeah. Next up, we have the uh, the Artemis story, which is interesting. It's her kind of moping around. Uh, I, you know, I can't believe that everybody thought that I killed <clears throat> Paula, that I could murder her, and blah blah blah. Feeling really sorry for herself. So. It definitely feels like it could lead to something more, but the ironic thing is at the end of the story, and she's out in the desert. We don't we don't know why. I mean, last time we saw her, I think she was playing the role of a hobo riding on a hiding out in a train that was heading who knew where. But now she's out in the desert somewhere, and she's sleeping uh, at night. Goes to sleep, a little sleeping bag, and a, a snake crawls into her sleeping bag and bites her. And you know she wakes up, obviously being bit, stands up, snake falls, and she yells out, "Poison!" Which is exactly how Hippolyta got killed. So, did somebody send the snake? Does it tie into her? So, you know, her role in killing Hippolyta. Again, by request, Hippolyta asked her to poison her. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm a fan of Artemis, and it, it was another part of the trial of the Amazon story that didn't oh. make much sense and that we didn't like. Um, so hopefully there's some redemption here for Artemis. Uh, I feel like as a character, she deserves it. Um, the art style is, is interesting because it feels, um, it feels sort of animated. Like, like this is, these are cells from a cartoon, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and I, you know, I, I like Serge Acuna's art. George Combatas is definitely more of a cartoony style. So I guess when you combine them together, this is kind of the style we're getting. It just feels a little it feels a little flat to me. The art feels a little flat. Um, but again, I'm, I'm happy that we're getting an Artemis story because she's a character that, uh, that I think has a lot of potential and uh, sort of feel like that potential hasn't been used lately, especially with the way she was treated in trial of the Amazon. So uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Uh, this is an absolute utter waste of paper. 12 pages and absolutely nothing happens. She's wondering, we already know about Artemis. We already know that uh, she's been exonerated from the death of Hippolyta. She even mentions that. We know that. And, uh, and, she, and she cries about it. 
Artemis isn't going to cry about that. Come on. So there was mischaracterization. I don't recognize this character. Uh, she's not cool. She's not fun. She is boring. It's 12 pages of her moping and groping and wandering through the desert, ending with her being bit by a snake. And, and that's it. Come on, man. In one page, we could have been, we could have got a recap in one page that she's, you know, she's got a new lease. She's wandering in the desert and she's, she's, she's got some agency. She's got a mission. She's other than just moping around and, and then ending with her sleeping randomly in some desert. Is she, is she outside of Banner McDowell? Where like, this is, this is such a waste of, of, of paper. Like nothing happens here. And it's this, it's this type of stuff that will drive people away from these types of anthologies there. We need substance here. Uh, and I, you know, and I, 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 I'm, I'm being critical here, but the, the writer, uh, Delilah S. Dawson, this isn't the first time we've had, we've had wasted pages. I mean, she's got to learn that if you don't have anything to say, then don't take, don't make, don't, say nothing in 12 issues in, in 12 pages if, if what do you want to say in 12 pages if you and ask yourself can you say it in one because you could absolutely say what happened in this 12 pages on one page you didn't need the full recap we already knew this all you needed to know is that uh artemis all you needed to say was that is yeah, a quick recap in in over two or three panels you could have recapped that uh since what she's been doing she's just been wandering around in fact i'm pretty sure we got an artemis artemis was last seen on a train sort of escaping and taking off and you know when i think of how far artemis has fallen she used to be so cool with red hood with bizarro she was awesome she was kicking ass she was potentially in love with red hood and and now we get her this sobbing this pathetic this weeping amazon uh I mean, this is this is shameful to my my mind. Absolutely shameful. And what what's there to look forward to here? She got bit by a snake. This issue. Ooh, what is she going to be bitten again next issue? I mean, I hate to be so harsh, but this is come on, man. This is this is this is this is not. This is not DC level stuff. Well, you got you got twelve pages here. I expect more. I, I'm sorry to brand a little bit harsh, but that's how I felt about it. But, anyways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm more interested in it for the potential of, yes, what comes next? Because you're right. There's not much that happens here. But you, you also have to remember that I'm sure DC Editorial is approaching it as there are a lot of people that pick this up because it has says Batman in the title that wouldn't go near a title that says Trial of the Amazons. So yeah. I get wow. that they're trying to establish, you know, Ar uh, Artemis's frame of mind. Although to your point, yeah. <laughs> it kind of seemed a little, you know, in a better frame of mind the last time we saw her, even though she was kind of out on her own. But I also agree that uh, with what Dawson has given us here that, you know, she's out on her own and she, she could, there could be a feeling there. And I guess, again, it's a little out of character for Artemis, but there could be a feeling there that, man, I can't believe all these, you know, women that I fought side by side with would believe that I was capable of murdering Hippolyta. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, The Nameless. It's a one-shot story. Uh, this guy who is sort of a nameless henchman goes up against um, uh, Duke Thomas, The Signal, which kind of – I do appreciate that it shows that Duke Thomas is, has no business trying to be a superhero. The guy's just not very uh, <laughs> capable because uh, this random henchman uses a bunch of weapons and, and could have defeated uh, – the signal could have defeated Duke Thomas had he wanted to, but that was not his point. The point was he was a henchman and he was diagnosed with some terminal illness. Uh, and he decided he was going to fight against um, the signal 
and show everybody, all the other nameless, because he broadcast this on the internet, that they could, that they're important too, like the, the forgotten people or what have you. Um, they have some agency. They they can be formidable. Um, and then it, it ends with that whole cliche of comics sometimes. The end, question mark. So uh, I thought it was okay. Um, my favorite thing about it is it showed that Duke Thomas has no business trying to be a superhero. I think that character is just <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love Scott Snyder, but that was a total misstep. Uh, and the fact that we see little of Duke Thomas is a good thing. And the less we see, the better. Uh, so, you know, overall, not a bad story, but n- nothing memorable here. Uh, what do yeah. you think? Uh, I agree. Uh, and I, I'm not I'm not a fan of the signal. Uh, I think he's he's just a re- redundant character whose only distinguishing feature is the fact that he's black and he's he wears a yellow nonsensically wears an absurd yellow costume just to make sure even worse than Batman wearing the wearing the yellow uh, bat symbol on his chest. He's a target. Uh, I, I will say this about uh, the, this, the signal instead of Red Hood, the Hill series, it should be the signal, the hill or Signal on the Hill series. And it should be Signal replacing Jason Todd in that series because that way we have a brand new, a huge group of new DC characters that can be evolved and organically developed. And, uh, you know, I, I would rather see that, although I understand why they're having Jason, you know, Red Hood because Red Hood's a bigger name than the Signal. Uh, I just don't care. I, I'd, I'd rather have the Signal, you know, Give him his own place in Gotham, like on the hill, instead of doing that with Red Hood. And put Red Hood with Artemis already. Come on, people. And and, and while you're out, put John Kent with Saturn Girl, and I'll be a happy camper. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Up next, we have this Lois Lane story. Far and away, my favorite story in the book. Uh, I feel like we don't, we don't get enough Lois Lane stories. She's such a great character. She's so smart and capable. Um and yeah, she just, she's just my favorite. So she's, she had this uh, reporter that she put on this assignment that was supposedly writing this sort of uh, fluff piece, a slice of life piece on this, um, this group that would get together and create puzzles for themselves and riddles and what have you on the, on the internet. And some of them even uh, live action. Yeah. Online uh, treasure then, hunting, online yeah, treasure hunting sort of thing. And yeah, r- you know, again, riddles and what, you know, clues to find whatever. And then one of the guys was like, oh, you, you know, do it in real life. And people would go there and they find, oh, find the location and there's tents there and food. And what another time uh, when the reporter actually found where it was, it was uh, a bunch of hot air balloons. I went for a hot air balloon, right? Well, this reporter has been killed and uh, Lois fears that it's because of something she found that's uh, tied into this online uh, treasure hunting uh, riddler community, not, not the riddler, but uh, this community that, that, creates puzzles and riddles for, for themselves. So how that's all going to play out says to be continued. So it says prologue. So does that mean we're getting a, a Lois Lane series? I don't know. I haven't heard anything. I would um, love that. Yeah. Or is this just going to continue in Batman Brave and the Bold? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but yeah, far and away, my favorite, um, like I said, my favorite story in this issue, although the, the next one's pretty fun too. Uh, but also I thought that the art by Tom Derenick was outstanding. Uh, you know, again, it's it's very slice of life. I'm not getting any um, like superhero stuff from Derenick, but he does a very good job. It reminded me a lot of uh, of the Triangle era of Superman when we'd get those uh, subplots that had to do with the Daily Planet staff. I kind of miss miss those sometimes. So, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, 
I liked it. I, I really liked the fact that it, uh, you know, it, we're, we're learning more about other reporters of the D- Daily Planet. And we, we know that it, it's sort of the central conceit of Superman's stories that it seems the only reporter that often is in danger is either Jimmy Olsen as a, as the so-called photographer or, or Lois Lane as the sort of stereotypical Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter. But, you know, Lois is at least an interim editor-in-chief of the planet. And, uh, you know, it makes sense that other reporters put their lives in danger all the time. And this Anna is one of them. And and Anna ends up getting killed. And Lois feels guilty. And she kind of probably should feel guilty because she she feels she minimized. Anna even expressed her concerns about her own life to Lois. But Lois, who's accustomed to having her life threatened and being, being in those types of situations, just, you know, basically told her to suck it up, more or less. And, of course, when Anna now has been killed, Lois, is uh, taking it uh, feels personally responsible and in Anna's investigations of this sort of like this online sort of like riddling and, and, and treasure hunting and this this online game it appears that uh, apparently a congressman's affair was accidentally revealed because the treasure hunt led many people to this hotel and accidentally this this congressman's affair was revealed by accident and one wonders if maybe the congressman uh, out of revenge is is playing a role in, in maybe and his death we don't know but it's it's interesting i mean this is just the first chapter but you know i i'm sort of inter- i'm invested in the story i want to know how anna died uh, you and uh you know I, I you know the art as you said the art's pretty damn good I, i'm really i'm interested in this and i would love uh an investigative story i you know because we get a detective noir story. Give me something written by Ed Brubaker, Greg Rucka, another Greg Rucka pen, Lois Lane story. Greg Rucka wrote a 12, I think a 12 issue Lois Lane story back in the day. Uh, just, I think four or five years ago, but he, um, that was unfortunately during the Bendis era, which unfortunately with the nonsense that, that Lois's story had to be embroiled in from Bendis, I would like to have that forgotten about and just have Rucka uh, come back and just, you know, focus on just a, a different kind of story than the one he had to write, uh, at that time. But in any event, uh, I didn't mind it. And I'm looking forward to the second chapter. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the Lois Lane story. You're right. The, it wasn't that it was bad, the one that Rucka wrote. It just wasn't what I wanted because it was that era. And as far yeah. as Lois uh, being a little, you know, putting herself in danger and not as seemingly being more brave, not as worried as somebody like Anna, Lois has the advantage of her husband always listening to her heartbeat. <laughs> that's you know, right. How much bravery is there? Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm teasing. That's true. Yeah I, yeah, I love her as a character, but you do think Anna doesn't have some superhero listening for her heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, the last story, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of fun from Dan Waters, uh, Ortiz on the art. I'm not the biggest fan of Ortiz's style on art. Uh, it is a black and white story. You can see the heavy manga manga influence. But it is a fun story. Uh, with It starts off with Batman counting every calorie, every amino acid, every little tiny thing down to the gram that goes into his body as he's preparing to go out and his you know, body temple got to be in machine and <laughs> you know, destroy, destroy everybody, whatever. And he gets called to this, um, um, disturbance that's happening at this fast food restaurant and it's Clayface. Clayface has lost it. Um, and basically what happened is Clayface went in there. He wanted a burger. He's like, once every once in a while, you just want to eat something. So clay and Clayface, his body's made out of clay now. Right. So if he wants to actually eat something, he's got to concentrate on, <laughs> created himself a tongue and then the taste buds on that tongue and his entire digestive system and his stomach. And like, he's got to do it all. He's got to do it all. 
um, and, and think about that and concentrate on it. And he does all that and he eats the burger and it just doesn't taste very good to him. And he just loses it. He's just mad. Um, cause he's, he probably did something wrong. He didn't create his taste buds, right. Or, you know, whatever. He just, he, he's upset that something most people t- take for granted, the fact that they can taste food, uh, he doesn't get to experience. And so at the end of the story, Batman decides, and again, he's counting every gram, every, you know, whatever that's not good for him, the sugary bun and all the condiments, whatever. Um, he's counting all that and how bad it's going to be for him. But it's one of these fast food cheeseburgers. He's like, yeah, but it tastes good. And like, yeah. Who of us does it, right? Like, I mean, exactly you, right. Know, you go to, you know, whatever fast food place you go to, you know, Burger King or McDonald's or. Uh, you know, in and out or five guys, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's processed food and it's, you know, sugary, this and extra carbs and whatever. And, and, you know, it's not healthy for you, but damn, doesn't it taste good? Uh, so I, pre- I appreciated that. That was a fun story. Uh, anything to add to that Rocky? Uh, yeah. Well, just, just a personal story uh, for myself over the last, uh, I'm on my second year now of, uh, of, uh, of uh, just, basically working out uh, at least four or five times a week. And I've, and so far it's going uh, pr- pretty good, I have to say. And, uh, and my diet, I, I literally, I, I eat like that during the week. I eat fairly uh, healthy during the week. Uh, but on Saturdays and Sundays, it's like, look out. I mean, I got no problem cheating. And uh, because, I, you know, that's just, you know, that's my prerogative. And I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. And that last panel with Batman biting into that burger, it's like, hey man, <laughs> go for it. It's still, there's there's enough beef in there that I could justify that in a carnivore diet. So that's uh, that's pretty good. Uh, so you got a couple of potatoes, you, you got, got a couple of tomatoes and some lettuce in there and some onions. And that's all right. That's, that's, that's minor cheating. You know, you got, you got to have some fun. I mean, if you're Batman, you got to take your joys as you find them, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a hundred percent true. If you're Batman, you take your joys where you find them. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Green Arrow number nine, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Sean Isaacs, colors by Ramulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Troy Petrie. I, I get what Williamson was going for here, the whole idea of Green Arrow, you know, doing a halo drop, high altitude, um, low deployment for uh, him to break into the the Hall of Ju- – what used to be the Hall of Justice. What are they calling it now? The Hall of Order or whatever now that Amanda yeah. Waller's in charge of it. And, uh, and I get him, you know, breaking in or whatever, but she confront she catches him. She's what, you know, where that he's going to be there, what have you. Um, and there's some back and forth and, and basically she's saying, yeah, come and come and work for me. Uh, you don't have superpowers. It's really the people that have superpowers that I'm after. And I just, again, I don't know why anybody at this point would believe a word she says, um, and I don't know why Oliver Queen just doesn't say, you know what? Fuck you. You know, you're a lying piece of shit. I don't believe anything you say. Uh, whereas that, that, I mean, why is there any tension? Why is there any sort of back and forth? What's he going to do? Will he, you know, get what she want? I just don't get it. It's not, it's not a secret anymore. I don't know why people still pretend like she's not an out and out villain. Um, but I'm sure he's going to go along with the plan for his own reasons. Maybe he thinks he can double cross or whatever, um, triple cross, quadruple cross. I don't even know anymore at this point. But she wants him to go and steal Sanctuary, steal the um, data from Sanctuary. I mentioned Heroes in Crisis. We mentioned a couple times on this podcast, actually, uh, which probably hadn't mentioned in a long time. So kind of funny that it's come up <laughs> a few times because there is an actual in-story <laughs> reference to it, to Sanctuary this week. So. 
uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what ha- what comes of it. But uh, aren't yeah. you experiencing? Aren't you experiencing post traumatic stress? Uh, the minute I heard sanctuary, I, I just started to go into convulsions. I'm thinking like, no, but I didn't. Hey, see, anyway. I, didn't I didn't hate that story the way a lot of people did. Um, <laughs> I, was it the best thing that Tom ever did? No, by by all means. And and he even admitted that he was like, yeah, if I would have. I, if I would have stopped to think about it, I would have, and if he could go back and do it over again, he would choose somebody other than Wally West. Uh, but I get what he was trying to do. Uh, I don't think he was successful, obviously. And there were other issues with it beyond that. Right. We talked about Harley Quinn yeah. taking out the Trinity, which was just ridiculous, but yeah. let's not relive that. Let's talk about the failures of this green arrow issue, not the failures of sanctuary. I just not buying it anymore. I just, it's so hard for me to read these stories with Amanda Waller and like, how does and I get it right? There's the whole code of being a hero and don't kill or whatever. But how does Oliver Queen not just like put an arrow in her head? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. would argue that she is the biggest force for bad things happening in the DC universe. I won't go so far as to say the biggest force of evil because I don't think she's inherently evil because she's just deluded. She believes what she's doing is right. She's not doing it, you know, because she wants to have the power or she wants to rule the world or whatever. She truly believes the world will be safer without all these metahumans. Um, and in reality, in our world, that might actually be true, uh, but not in the DC universe. The DC universe needs people with powers to save them from um, necro stars and dark side invasions and that sort of thing. Uh, and Godzilla's and King Kong's and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just not buying it anymore. I'm, I'm so ready to have this absolute power series happen and just get rid of Amanda. Give me, give me six months. Can I have, can we just start with a six month break? <laughs> like I'll even, at this point, I probably even like one month. Can I get one month? Because she's in every goddamn book, and I'm just so sick of her. I, yeah. I really am. So, a- anyway, anything to add? Well, yeah, you know, Amanda Waller is. She's just. She's this contrived plot device for and a, and a perfect excuse for bad writing. It's like, hmm, I'm a writer. I don't know what to do, but I need a character that just shows up and knows everything for no apparent reason whatsoever. Amanda Waller. Ah, she was, yeah, and how does she know we do? It's sort of like if I if I if I wrote a comic book and I script that Superman flies, nobody would be surprised that Superman's flying. He's Superman. Well, you throw Amanda Waller in the scene. Amanda Waller just knows why she she knows everything. Why she's Amanda Waller? It's just it's just too convenient. And and I, maybe it's because she's human. She's not a metahuman. But you know, it's it just seems too too contrived here. Now, uh, at least I, I'll say this about uh, Williamson. Uh, it. It still fails this issue. N- number one, uh, it never occurs to Oliver Queen to ask himself, hey, wait a minute. I owned the Hall of Justice. How did Amanda Waller get it from me? He never asks himself that question. I mean, he owned it. He was the owner. 
I think Williamson forgot that. I mean, it would think now maybe did did Oliver Queen die and then he, some you know in the in the seven days that he was dead, it was sold to, to the government. The government just doesn't. I'm sorry, but the government what just confiscates the Hall of Justice and you know Batman doesn't seem to mind. You know, Batman just says, "Oh, okay, so no, I guess, I guess that's it." The whole, the Justice League, Titans. Oh, I, I guess there's an Oblivion bar. There's a magical Oblivion bar in the basement of the Hall of Justice. What's going to happen with that? I mean, you know, I'm, and then the 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 hypocrisy of Amanda Waller talking about you know weapons of mass destructions in the Hall of Justice. Uh, well, wait a minute. That had it was under it was under very powerful guard. How are you overcoming the security of the Hall of Justice? I, I'm sorry, but. Again, there's there's to Williamson's credit, he does his best to 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 come up with comic book science to how Amanda Waller and Peacemaker and all those guys get all this, uh, get all these weapons and access in the Hall of Justice. But I just thought, again, just sheer convenience contrivance. And I I just didn't really buy it. Also, how did Amanda Waller get away from Earth three? Well, we got further confirmation this issue that Amanda Waller wasn't. This is, in fact, the Amanda Waller that's on that was from Earth three. She says that in Amanda, she she Amanda says that a benefactor brought me home from Earth three and gave me a new mission. Now, we know from solicits that that benefactor is likely Brainiac. But 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 let's just back up for a second. What we know of Earth three. Amanda Waller loved being on Earth 3. Why? Because she was in complete, total, dominating control of Earth 3. She had an arrangement with Ultraman. She basically said to Ultraman, Ultraman, you're kind of an idiot. Let me do all the hard stuff, all the thinking. You can just sit back and be Ultraman and be the asshole you are, and I'm gonna and I'll run things. And Ultraman had no problem with that. Why would Amanda Waller want to leave a situation like that where she could literally have her she could have her everyday geekasm and controlgasms all she wants every day plus twice on Tuesday uh, on Earth three? What would Brainiac offer her to come back to her home for for what? To, to take over all the all all the metahumans to to steal all the power, I I need more than that. That that's not good enough. I I, I don't buy it. Where's the evil? Where's this sudden turn for evil? I don't I don't get it. Uh, and what what I'm so disappointed about DC about is that we've got this relentless, very one dimensional uh, portrayal of of we we've had virtually zero evolution of 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 character for amanda waller over the last two years she's the same old bitch the same old control freak the showing up she should have been in earth three but she wasn't so she's just come back and she's doing the same old things again and again secret after secret after secret no development no nothing uh you 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 interviewed nicole mains great interview by the way jace i i listened to it uh you interviewed and she made it she she hinted that at least on her four issue series dream team Amanda Waller's going to be in it, Suicide Squad, and and there might be some character development there that she's Nicole Means said she will uh, develop, and and I hope she does because I, I I really need an explanation. How does Amanda Waller go from just being a control freak to full bore evil? I'm really curious because so far we haven't really got any of that, and it's very disappointing. And we didn't get much here. And as far as Sanctuary at the end, I don't care. I mean, honest to God, if I would have asked you, Jace. A serious question. If I'd have asked you uh, before we read this issue, if I'd have asked you, do you think Amanda Waller has all the secrets of Sanctuary already? You would have probably guessed. Yeah, yes. She of course. Yes, exactly. Like she, said, she knows everything. <laughs> she knows she everything. Knows, that's her superpower. Why would she not already have that? Yeah. And the only thing I can think, uh, just to play devil's advocate to why would she leave Earth 3, 
well, maybe she got bored. She had complete control of Earth-3. Now, maybe, you know, like you said, Brainiac, maybe with the help of Brainiac, she thinks she can do the same thing to to this Earth. So that's... Yeah. And Ultraman was killed. Ultraman was killed, so maybe it's not fun anymore, right? But yeah. anyway, but yeah. So but yeah, we'll talk We'll talk about the absolute power event at the end, everybody, so if you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, but let's go <laughs> ahead and finish up here uh, with Detective Comics number 1082. Uh, written by Rom V, Ricardo Federici, and Stefano Raphael handle the uh, art duties, colors by Lee Luffridge, Ariana Mayer uh, on the letters. And then there is uh, a backup story that, excuse me, it's the second part of the, the backup about uh, Dr. Hurt. It's written by Dan Waters. Christopher Mitten is the artist. Triana Farrell on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Um, man, I, I run so hot and cold on these uh, detective comic stories. Uh, wasn't liking it at first, then it got good. Now it feels like it's dragging for me again. Uh, I will say, you know, we have these two different artists. We have uh, Ricardo Federici on the Batman story, and then we have uh, Stefano Raphael on the, the question story. I'm enjo actually enjoying the question story. I'm enjoying the agency that uh, Renee Montoya has as the, uh, as the question a lot. But I enjoy the art from Ricardo Federici with this – Batman lost in the proverbial desert of his mind, I guess, maybe, or maybe it's a real desert. It's not quite clear um, uh, with this whole Dr. Hurt story. And he's trying to get to Talia and what have you. But that the narrative on that one is just dragging. It's dragging, but the art's gorgeous. The narrative on the other one, fast-paced, a lot happening, a lot of impactful moments, but I don't enjoy the art as much. So, um, And it doesn't, it doesn't balance out. It's not just, okay, well, I get good art on this one, great story on this one, great art on one, great story on this one. Eh. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move to the final phase. I mean, part of what you and I were both talking about when we were enjoying Detective Comics not so long ago, um, not to say you're not, maybe you're still enjoying it, um, but we felt like we were building to the end, finally, for Rom V. Yeah. And now it feels like we're at, okay, here we are in the upteenth intermission where he's been taken out of Gotham and he's trying to fight through whatever this Dr. Hurt guy's got for him and trying to fight off the Asmir. And maybe he's fought off the Asmir already. Maybe he hasn't. What about Barbados? Like, can we just get there already? Can we just get there? Um, I, I just, it's, it's just taking too long. I'm, I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to keep my interest. Uh, but I did go back after I read it. I just went back and didn't read it and just looked through the art. I was, oh man, so gorgeous. The art's so gorgeous. Um, so, uh, and then as far as the backup, it, it's okay. Uh, I didn't think this part, this part two was as well done as part one. Um, felt like a little bit tropey. Um, but it may, by the time it's done, the backup, give more context to Dr. Hurt, which in turn will maybe influence or add some context to the Dr. Hurt story and uh, Dr. Hurt character in the main story. So it may, it may improve the main story for me um, retroactively, which is kind of weird to think about. But uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on these two? Well, I, I agree with you that uh, I think Ram V, uh, I've been hit and miss on this too, mostly hit, uh, but this is, this feels like a, we know we're leading toward, this is sort of ultimately the final chapter. We're in the last, whatever, I think the final issue of this will be in August. And uh, so we're at the, we're at the end game here of this grand epic by Ram V. Uh, but this, this does seem a little bit, 
I feel is like almost plotting at this point. We Batman is hallucinating. Remember Talia, I mean, Batman was hung by the Orgums in Gotham City and he's healing and Talia took him, took him to the desert, let him wander in the desert where she knows he has to go on his own internal journey where he's hallucinating, talking to Dr. Hurt and Dr. Hurt is himself sort of the embodiment of the devil and and Batman, it's mentioned here, which is curious because I didn't really know. Batman has apparently already defeated the Asmir, which was the sort of the mental, the psychological infection of the organs. He's defeated the Asmir, but now I think he's battling Barbados while Dr. Hurt is is talking to him. And, and Batman, I guess, overcomes Barbados, I think, at the end. And then at the end of the main story... Uh, Batman is is sort of taken back, and Talia, you know, is given back Batman, and eventually Batman will make his way back to Gotham. Uh, meanwhile, that is interspersed with the story of of R- Renee Montoya. The question working alongside Batgirl as they're trying to get to the she's trying to solve the mystery of the of the of the murder of Officer Henry Fielding, who was killed by his partner, but who was also who was also who was working for uh, Lady Orgum or the Orgum Queen. And uh, again, some some cool moments, but we, we kind of already know this and I don't really think it's necessary. We Why couldn't we just have Batman? We, we could have, couldn't we just avoid all this? I mean, Batman's healed from psychological effects before, you know, and and Batgirl and Orgum, like, does it really matter that we have an immediate s- this, the solving of the crime of Henry Fielding? How much of that is that really important? To me, the more interesting aspects of this were the, the the backup, which I think has which has gives us more information on Doctor Hurt and the suggestion, which is very interesting, that Doctor Hurt at the end of the backup story, he uh, his brain patterns are essentially they overcome. It's revealed that this character named Selma, this uh, uh, black character, that her brain patterns are overridden by the brain patterns of Dr. Hurt. And Dr. Hurt was this character who sort of sets people up to fail. He props you up, puts you on a pedestal, makes you feel good about yourself and some aspect of your life, and then absolutely destroys your life, as was shown in the backup last issue. And it looks like Dr. Hurt, I'm curious now, is this Dr. Hurt actually this Selma character? Is 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 this how Dr. Hurt, is, is Dr. Hurt a character that his brain patterns go from character to character and maybe we'll never know who Dr. Hurt is. Is this now the central conceit or power of the character or is this misdirection? I'm not really sure. Uh, it's, it's Dan Waters. I, I like Dan Waters, but I, I will also admit that at times Dan Waters does script some tales that I'd, it takes a while for them to sort of ferment and for me to appreciate. So, um, not bad, not bad. I st- I'm not lost. I know what's going on. I just feel that we're sort of dragging to get to an endpoint that we all know is inevitably going to come. So, but it's all right. Yeah, definitely feels like we we get momentum and then we slow down and tread water for a little while. So, uh, anyway, that does it for the books we're going to talk about in detail uh, this week. As far as collections go, we've got a Justice Society of America Volume One, the new Golden Age hardcover. It collects uh, the current Justice Society of America run from Jeff Johns, which is going to be his last work at DC for the foreseeable future, as well as the new Golden Age one-shot. Um, so we've really been enjoying that series. Unfortunately, it's been plagued by delay after delay after delay. Um, so hopefully it comes to a satisfying conclusion before Johns moves on. 
Uh, there's also a Noc- Night Terrors Nocturnal Creatures hardcover. So this collects the Night Terrors uh, two-issue series of Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Joker, Punchline, and Zatanna. We weren't big fans of Night Terrors. I think the Zatanna, Far and Away by Dennis Culver is the best story in that bunch, uh, but not something that we necessarily would recommend. Uh, there's also an Absolute Dark Knight hardcover, which if you haven't ever read The Dark Knight, uh, this actually collects that Dark Knight Returns seminal work from Frank Miller, as well as uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again, as well as um, uh, a slipcase and new you know, behind-the-scenes uh, sketches and all that sort of stuff. So if that's your jam, uh, you can look into picking that up. I mean, absolute editions are oversized with all kinds of art. They're usually about 100, 150 bucks. Uh, and that does it. Uh, oh no, there's also one other. There's a zero hour crisis in time, 25th anniversary omnibus hardcover, which I can't believe it's been 25 years since zero hour crisis in time. If you're not familiar, uh, Dan Jurgens, Jerry Ordway, uh, along with quite a few other artists. Uh, and, and this omnibus collects all the tie-ins as well. So after Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that they didn't just reboot everything like they did with the uh, New 52, which is what they should have done, what Marv Wolfman wanted to do. And they started building up some continuity issues after supposedly they're going to clean up all the continuity issues as Crisis on Infinite Earths. So they came out with another event a few years after. I think it was about five years after, like right around... Uh, well, it's 25 years, right? So 1999 or 1989, rather, four years after crisis, three years after crisis ended, four years after crisis started. Um, they came out to zero year and they again tried to clean stuff up. So it's very classic. It's very late 80s, very of its time. Uh, fun fact, uh, zero hour crisis in time came out when I actually owned a comic book. That was the time that I actually owned a comic book shop. Uh, <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it was good. It was good times uh, back then. So right on. Uh, anyway, that, wait, 1999. Did I say? It says it's the 20th anniversary. I don't think that's right. The 25th anniversary of Zero Hour. It says it's the 25th anniversary of Omnibus, but yeah, I own, I own my comic shop in 94. That's not yeah. the 20th anniversary. <laughs> the dates are not the dates are not lining up on that correctly. Let me, I'm just going to Google it real quick. Yeah. So zero hour came out in 94. Yeah. So that's the, th- it should be the 30th anniversary, not the 25th anniversary. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. That's the time when I own my, com- that's the time when I own my comic shop, 93, 94. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that's uh, the collections that are out there this week. If you are uh, so inclined, everybody. So, uh, all right, Rocky book of the week. Is it easy? Is it hard? It was it was very easy for me, and that for that was the penguin uh, number seven. Uh, the penguin is number seven. It's a it's a frankly it's a game changer. It's a, it's it it actually has lasting impact, and it completely changes my perspective on the on the penguin moving forward on his origin. It it, it gives him more. It renders him as being uh, far more intelligent and deceptive than he ever has been in the past, or, or or to the extent he has been written very intelligently in the past. He's a he's a genius uh, mobster. Uh, but this simply shows that he's always been because he had to be in order to overcome the very obstacles and his deficiencies of, of character and of size and of an uh, of intimidation. And uh, it's just Tom King just scripts a fantastic uh 
comic and and the art uh, i know while you had some issues with the portrayal of penguin i think he looks more terrifying and yet horrific and yet powerful all at the same time and i think it's a it's it's another another example of tom king being collaborating with a, just a good set of artists that uh give justice to the story he's trying to tell so what about yourself yeah you know i thought i was gonna go with the penguin as well um partly because you picked it and, and i want to pick something different but also because even though, you know, we talk about singular story, I'd probably have to go with the Penguin too. I didn't like every story in Batman Brave and the Bold, but I loved the Lois Lane story. I thought the cheeseburger story was a lot of fun. And I thought I, it was nice seeing the classic Batman in the blue and gray costume with the Maps Maguchi story. So, you know, the the nameless story, eh, like I said, forgettable. Artemis story, problematic probably as well. Um, but man, on the strength of the, the fun of the cheeseburger story, the strength of the Lois story and... Uh, just the fun of the Carl Kershaw doing classic Batman. I'll, I'll pick Batman Brave and the Bold. Uh, so I mentioned before Absolute Power. So Comics Pro was last week uh, on Wednesday. DC did their uh, big uh, promotion. There's an article, if you follow on social media, you probably saw it already, our article on the Comic Source about this. So Absolute Power is the big event coming up later this year. Amanda Waller teaming up with Brainiac takes the power of not just the heroes, like she told all the villains, hey, go kill all the heroes. She's double-crossing those villains as well. No surprise, right? She takes all the power of all the super humans, super metahumans uh, in the DC universe and, you know, fallout ensues. So we'll see how that all plays out. It's called Absolute Power. There's a lot of tie-ins. It's being written by Mark Wade, uh, art by uh, Dan Mora and Mikhail Yanin. It kicks off with New Comic Book Day. There's also a bunch of tie-in series and almost all the tie-in series that I've seen so far, up to like 25 issues-ish, are all written by Mark Wade. So this is a Mark Wade run joint. So in a way, I'm worried that Wade's uh, biting off more he, than he can chew. It does make sense that he's why he left Shazam to focus on this. Um, but at the same time, I like that it's going to be one cohesive uh, voice. And you know, Mark Wade's a good voice to have because he's been doing some fantastic work uh, in DC lately. And like I said, if this takes Amanda, if this shows the world that Amanda Waller is an out-and-out villain and takes her off the playing field for quite a while, then I'll be happy about that. Um, so, yeah, we've got the Absolute Power series, uh, New Comic Book Day, May, Absolute Power Ground Zero in June, uh, Absolute Power 1 through 4 starts in July. There's a Superman Absolute Power title, a Batman Absolute Power, a Wonder Woman Absolute Power. There's a seven-issue Absolute Power Task Force 7 series. There's a three-issue Absolute Power Origin series. Um, so, again, it's a lot for Mark Wade. Um, I hope they have A-list artists uh, lined up. I hope they're working on it currently, and I hope all this stuff comes out on time. Uh, in addition to that, they announced uh, some of the titles for the return of the El Else Worlds imprint that's coming. And they also announced a new line of collected editions that, that are going to be curated for some, uh, some various characters. So uh, think of the Epic line over at Marvel. This is going to be like the DC uh, equivalent of that, if you will. Um, and they're going to have, um, you know, like, hey, you pick up the Flash series or the Flash uh, collection, and it's going to have you know Barry Allen Flash, Wally West Flash, all all, all different, um, all different characters. But you know the stories. Like, if I if I want to know 
essentially who the Flash is or who Superman is or who Wonder Woman is at their core, um, then then that's what I would pick up and read, you know, or somebody that wants to to maybe not familiar with comics, but they want to have like the essential Catwoman stories. Um, that's the line that you're going to be able to pick up. It's going to be called DC's finest um, graphic collections is what they're calling it. So that's coming as well. And then um, maybe the one that sort of impacts our lives the most and actually got the biggest round of applause from retailers. They haven't announced a date yet, but DC has announced that they are going back to releasing their books on Wednesdays, not Woo-hoo! on Tuesdays or like everybody else, uh, but on Wednesdays. And uh, yeah, so that means like we're doing today, where we're recording on Tuesday, uh, we'll go back to, yeah, releasing it on Wednesday because the embargo date is going to change. Um, you know, we won't be able to, to ha- put this out on Tuesday. <clears throat> we'll have to wait. Uh, until uh, till Wednesday when it comes out. So um, I, kn- I know there was a lot of retailers that um, didn't release their books until Wednesday anyway, but there are some that did. There's some that even released them earlier because when it switched over to Lunar, they were shipping them so they'd have them in time for Tuesday because a lot of comic shops, they close on Mondays rather than the weekend, rather than being closed on Sunday. If they're closed any day, it's usually Monday. And then you're not there on Monday to receive a shipment to have them out on Tuesday. So they'd ship them the week before and people were selling them over the weekend. But yeah, sometime in April is all we know that the DC release date is going to go back to Wednesdays. So, uh, so that's all the big news out of comics pro from DC, uh, a lot of doings and happenings. And obviously we'll be covering it all here. Uh, and then kind of on a more somber note, a very sad note, uh, especially personally for me, uh, Ramona Freyden, the legendary, illustrator, female creator, passed away, uh, was announced by her agent, Catskill Comics, over the weekend. I mean, 94 years old, you can say she definitely led a full life. Um, You know, legendary, seminal work on Aquaman, really bringing that character into the, back to prominence in the Golden Age and then into the Silver Age, and co-created Metamorpho. Um, She drew the first comic that I ever bought. It was a Super Friends comic. You know, I loved the Super Friends cartoon when I was four years old. And when I went to the store and spinner rack there, it was what I knew. And I, I, you know, picked it up and I got a chance to meet her at San Diego Comic-Con in 2015. I, I was in tears getting a chance to meet her, thinking about, uh, you know, just yeah. how my life has been impacted from reading and falling yeah. in love with art. You know, Do you remember the comic? Do you remember the comic that if there's yes, first read? Yeah, Super Friends. Uh, I'm trying to remember what what issue. Let me pull. Let me get Super Friends in front of me. I'll be able to tell you what issue. Um, but she was so she was so gracious, like uh, you know, that I was there with tears in my eyes. Um, you know, she and I, I've read several interviews that she's given over the years, um, and, and reread them. Um, quite a few times over the last few days um, just to kind of revisit. Uh, and she talked about, yeah, not really understanding why people, you know, why it resonated with people the way that it did, but was just happy that it did. Um, so yeah, uh, she's, she's a legend. She'll, she'll definitely be missed. Uh, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, number 40. 
Number four, 40. <clears throat> one's number 40, Wonder Woman on the cover. Um, yeah. Nice. From uh, January 1st, 1981 is a cover date. So, yeah. Um, and again, there's been a lot of tributes on Instagram and Twitter and what have you. Um, Cause she was just, yeah, she was just a legend. So yeah, I got a chance to meet her. Um, <laughs> the original copy that I had was lost to the ravages of time. I think my mom probably threw it away, but of course I, I, you know, bought a replacement copy years and years ago and she signed it for me. And I also got her to do a commission. She did a plastic man commission for me and told her draw whoever you want. She's a big fan of drawing plastic man and metamorpho because she loved how, um, you know, malleable they were. She could do pretty much anything. So he's got, he's sitting on a chair and his neck is a big corkscrew. Um, <laughs> and I bought some other original art that she had. And so, yeah, she was just such a lovely person. Um, and we chatted for probably a good 30, 45 minutes. You know, I was asking her about her career and nice. You think back to being, you know, back in the 50s and a female one of the very few and you know i asked her what you know did the guys make funny or whatever and she's like no not at all like i just didn't experience that which is so strange um because you know nowadays you hear the opposite um but yeah it's just by all account i never heard anybody say a bad word about her and her art is just iconic so uh i hope she's you know resting in peace and I felt like I lost my, one of my grandmothers uh, when I found out she was gone, but just grateful to have had a chance to meet her. And like I yeah. said, she was so generous. And that was the first time I met her. I saw her at, uh, a couple times after that and said hi um, at some subsequent shows. But uh, yeah, a big, a big loss. She was a pioneer. Um, and uh, yeah, our, our best, our condolences to her uh, friends and family. She'll, she'll definitely be missed. Uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, she's, she's almost as old as Wonder Woman or, I think actually is older, isn't she? She died at the. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, one yeah. woman was nineteen forty-two, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah, crazy. Wow, an amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's another legend has has left us, and uh, she's uh, someone that uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that you had you know that you said all that because I. I, she's a prime example of an artist uh, that I've just taken, I've taken for granted because I was, I mean, my God, my, I have a whole Super Friends collection too. And I, I was too young to appreciate the skill of the creators that did it. It's only now as I'm older, as an aging, older collector who now I have a greater appreciation for the people that, that gifted us with their talents. And uh, it's really sad to see her pass. Yeah, and she just did some covers from DC within the last couple of years. I'm really glad that she got to do that. She did an action comics one that's a, a bullpen scene of the Daily Planet. And then she yeah. had a Metamorpho cover uh, for Danger Street, for uh, Tom King's uh, oh, that's, Danger Street that's that was done recently. So, yeah, fantastic to see her working uh, right up to the end. Uh, speaking of Tom King, I hinted at it earlier, everybody. You're going to have Tom King, Daniel Samper on uh, the Comic Source podcast coming up. Uh, later this week. So look for that. Probably going to drop on Friday is my guess. Um, so really looking forward to chatting with them about Wonder Woman. Uh, I just recently had the opportunity to talk with Dan Jurgens and Mike Perkins about their upcoming uh, Black Label book, uh, The Batman First Night. That comes out March 5th. Tell your retailers you want it now. It is fantastic. We'll be talking about it next week. That's when it comes out March 5th. Um, so 
that's available audio only. It's also available on the Comic Source YouTube channel with uh, some graphics, some interior pages and covers. That was a fantastic chat. They both gave a lot of insight into the making and, and choices they made. They, they talked about the coloring, how they were going to have Mike Spicer, um, the longtime colorist for Mike Perkins, color it one way to begin with. And then they switched like 10 pages in, which is a, a, get a little behind the scenes uh, insight into that switch and why they made that change and what have you. So yeah, just a fantastic conversation with two uh, legendary creators. I'd never have a, ch- I've never met Mike Perkins uh, in person. I've never had a chance to chat with him before. He was, he was uh, just a lot of fun to, to talk to amazing artist. uh, artists. And yeah, Dan, I've, I've talked to a ton of times, see him at shows and, and know uh, relatively well. So it was great to see him as well. Um, so uh, Daily Spawn continues on the Comic Source uh, YouTube channel as well. Rocky mentioned my Nicole Maines interview. So a lot of good content out there, everybody. Uh, don't forget to head over to the Comic Source channel and subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube right now, you're watching the Comic Boom uh, YouTube channel. So uh, be sure you subscribe. Leave some comments below. Let us know what you thought of this week's books. Ring the notification bell so you know when new content comes out on Rocky's channel. If you're listening to the audio only and you want to find that channel on YouTube, just go uh, to YouTube, comic space, boom, exclamation point, and you'll find it. Uh, as far as our back catalog for the comic source with thousands, literally thousands and thousands of episodes, they're all there for your listening pleasure. Just go to wherever you get your podcast uh, app or platform or what have you. Do a search for the comic source and subscribe. Uh, again, tons of content, daily spawns coming out every day. Um, and we're doing it because we love comics and a lot of great things coming up later this year. So be sure you uh, join us and follow us on social media. So, you know, when things are about to drop uh, Rocky, anything else to add? Got anything coming up? You want to tease anybody? Well, I'm behind in some of my reviews, but uh, I'll, uh, I'm not going to make any promises at this point. I'm ha- I have a busy week at work, but uh, we shall see. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, Rocky and I were lucky enough to get, uh, find time to get together to uh, review Ultimate Spider-Man number one and Ultimate Spider-Man number two came out last week. And we are still planning on getting a review out for that as well, because that's been uh, it's been a breath of fresh air to read uh, something from Marvel that really doesn't feel like you got to read tons of other stuff to uh, to get into and understand. So for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, no promises, but we'll try to get out that uh, get that out yeah. for you uh, at some point. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining as always. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.